0: What we're focusing on and this year to stay on track we have decided to make monthly applications of that overall goal so last month the focus was that christ is the reason we fit together he's at the heart of it all if we don't have christ first place in our hearts we're not going to be united we're not going to grow up together into him who is the head into his body as his body this month we're going to be focusing on encouragement and the idea here for the month of February is encouragers build us up so we fit together we need encouragers to build us up encouragement is such an important overlooked work and the great thing about it is encouragement is something that anybody can do if you have nothing else to give you can give encouragement. You know, there have been days when, when I've been down, times when I felt that, you know, maybe I'm not making a difference or maybe work that I do doesn't matter. And just when I have thoughts like that or have days like that, there'll be a card in the mailbox or a text or some encouraging word that picks me up and reminds me of what life is all about. And keeps me going I think it was Mark Twain who said I can go two months on a good compliment don't you feel that way you know just just a little word goes so far in helping our attitudes and helping our emotions our drive our motivation so this is an overlooked but very important work so many people are starving for words of encouragement. The ribs are showing on their self-worth because they've been overlooked. No one has been feeding them the encouragement they deserve. Without it, a person may be able to exist, but that's not real life. Jesus wants us to have abundant life. And part of that is being in a place where there is a lot of encouragement. And so that's why we want to focus on encouragement this month let's all be encouragers as we build one another up so that we fit together and no one slips through the cracks the imagery behind our goals that you've probably seen on the slides that patrick has designed so well is of a puzzle being put together have you ever put one of those puzzles together with like three thousand pieces and you get to the end and there's just one piece missing. Isn't that frustrating? It doesn't matter that 2,999 pieces are in place. The whole picture is not intact, It's not complete. It's not as it should be because of one missing puzzle piece. So we don't want that to happen here. We want everyone to feel uplifted and encouraged, and the best way to make that happen is to make it a personal responsibility to encourage one another. Uh, one thing that the elders have suggested and wanted me to communicate to you is this month they want us all to make an effort at writing cards. Uh, if, you're not, if card writing's not your thing, a text message or a phone call will do, or even a word in person, but to be specific and to give you a goal, we want everybody to work on writing cards. Just go to the store, buy some generic cards, something that you can keep handy uh, by your chair and, and and fill them out you know every week every day if you can and put them in the mail think especially about the folks that are isolated our shut-ins our folks that can't get out right now or people who are going through a very difficult time or dealing with an illness we want to encourage these folks and cards are a great way to do it I also want to highlight some of the things we're doing at Asheville Road in terms of encouragement. Some of the things we're doing to build one another up so that we fit together. Uh, We have several programs going on. The Secret Sisters program just got started. Uh, That's the goal of that. Uh, We have senior saints activities that are ongoing. And uh, that fellowship is certainly encouraging. We do house cleanups. Bob Canoes has been very good At organizing several of those over the last couple of months and we've been able to clean up people's yards and uh, cut down trees and haul them to the road and doing things like that to help people out Uh, we have the Good Samaritans program that the young people are involved in they do a lot of good things through that and uh, one of the big events that's coming up this month is the family retreat the family retreat was born out of a desire to figure out how to minister to young families in particular but all our families And uh, we have been doing that for the last several years. This is the first one that Eli will be leading. And uh, I'm very excited about what he's put together. And so that's going on. And uh, if you're going to that, I know that you will be encouraged through that. There are a lot of other things that we do here at Asheville Road for encouragement. I want to encourage you to focus on that this month in the sense that we're trying to build one another up so that we fit together. Let's talk about the text. Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Ron read a portion of this for us just a moment ago. And I had Ron start his reading at verse 13 because I think it's important to get the background of the text. You see, Paul and Barnabas are on the first missionary journey. And just as they get started and they come to Pamphylia, their traveling companion... Barnabas' cousin, John Mark, deserts them and goes back home to Jerusalem. There are all kinds of reasons why Mark could have abandoned them. Uh, he could have been homesick. He might have been afraid of the journey. It was a dangerous, treacherous journey they were on. He might have been afraid of the persecution and the opposition. He may not have known how controversial their mission was. Whatever it was we would probably do the same thing if we were in his shoes. It was a very dangerous thing. And yet, Paul and Barnabas continued on. One commentator said, The wonder is not that Mark went back. The wonder is that Paul went ahead. They continued. They pushed forward. And they come to a place called Antioch Pisidia. And while they're there, on the Sabbath day, they go into the synagogue... And the rulers of the synagogue ask, verse 15, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. That's where the title of today's lesson comes from a word of encouragement. If you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. There's discussion over what is meant by that phrase. Uh, Some of your translations may read word of exhortation. And some people look at their use of that phrase simply as a part of the synagogue schedule uh, or the synagogue organization of services. And the synagogues did follow a very orderly service uh, just like we do. You know, we think about how we run our worship services and we follow a routine and I think that's helpful for worship. If you know what to expect, there are fewer distractions. And that's very good, and they did this in the synagogues on the Sabbath day. They would start with what they called the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our our God is one God. They would recite that together, and then they would have prayer. Then they would have a reading from the law, and then they would have a reading from the prophets, and then they would have what they called the word of exhortation. And This is the phrase that's used by the men here in the synagogue, in Antioch, Pisidia. The word of exhortation was basically a message, an explanation of the readings from the law and the prophets that day. So it was like a sermon. And some commentators look at this and say, that's all they meant by that. They just meant, Paul, do you want to comment on what was being read today? We're at that part of the service. But I want to point out to you that the word translated encouragement or exhortation is paraklesis in Greek. It's a compound word that means a calling alongside. And it has to do with coming up alongside someone who is troubled and giving them comfort, giving them consolation, helping them along. Paraclesis. And they asked for a word of comfort, a word of exhortation. In, in a sense, all scripture serves as a word of encouragement. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul says, through the endurance and the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. And so I believe that, you know, maybe they were talking about the schedule of services, but that wasn't all they were talking about. They firmly believed that a word from the Lord through Paul would be an encouragement to that church. And here Paul and Barnabas were, probably discouraged over the departure of Mark. There's a lesson here. Sometimes the best way out of discouragement is to look for somebody to encourage. You can't control how much encouragement comes to you, but you do have control how much comes from you. And Sometimes the best way to lift your spirits is to encourage somebody else. That at least is what Paul and Barnabas were doing here in Antioch, Pisidia on this particular Sabbath day. Our plan is to analyze the message that Paul gave and to use it as an example of giving encouragement to others and just to see how encouraging the word of the Lord truly is. Uh, People joke about uh, sermons today that there are three points in a poem. What's interesting here is this sermon has three points, each one introduced by the word brethren or brothers or something akin to it, And, and he quotes from Jewish poetry, so I guess... Paul, you know, may have started this trend of three points and a poem. I've got three points. I don't think I'm going to throw any poetry at you this morning. But we're going to follow these points of this lesson as an example of a word of encouragement. So let's start, number one. To those overwhelmed by life, Paul says God is in control. He gives a history lesson at the beginning of this sermon, which starts in verse 16. And for us, a history is a history study of human events. We control history. We're the, player, the major players. We are the subjects of history. But in this history lesson, it's God who is in control. Now I want you to look at these first few verses of the sermon and notice the verbs. All of them apply to God. Notice what he's doing throughout history for his people. Notice the control that he has regardless of what men try to do. Verse 17, first of all, he says that in the days of the patriarchs, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers. And so, number one, during the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God chose Abraham's family, to be his special people. Secondly, when they went down to Egypt, he says, verse 17, that God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. What does he mean by made their people great? Well, you go to Exodus chapter 1 and you read about that. And in Exodus 1, you see that they were fruitful and they multiplied, and the size of the nation of Israel grew to such an extent that it intimidated the new pharaoh. Who decided he would subject them to slavery to try to keep them in control but he wasn't in control god was in control so thirdly you see still in verse 17 that with uplifted arm he led them out he led them out of egyptian slavery next verse 18 for 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness now some translations say he carried them through the wilderness but he put up with them, he carried them, they provoked him with their complaining, they grumbled, they had their own ideas, but still, God was in control. Verse 19, after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. This is the conquest of Canaan. They were settled in the land just as he promised they would be. Then, verse 20, this took about 450 years. Then we come to the days of the judges, and during the days of the judges, he he raised up deliverers for them. The surrounding nations would oppress. The nation of Israel would rebel, and yet man could not thwart God's plan. He remained in control the whole time. Verse 21, they asked for a king, and God established Saul and then David And then he said, there will come from David, a king, an anointed one who would rule all mankind and save people from their sins. After that, long after that, he sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for that man. And John, uh, Paul rather, talks about this in verse 24. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And then finally, in this history lesson, he shows that he brought Jesus, the Savior, as he promised, verse 23. So this survey of history has God as the subject, and throughout the whole thing, he is always in control. So if you're overwhelmed by life and it's spinning out of control and you feel that there's no way that you can ever carry this burden, let it go and realize that you're not in charge of things. God is in control and he can handle it. Life can be especially overwhelming when we feel that our hand is at the tiller and everything depends on us. That's when we need to remind ourselves. It's not us. It's God. He's in control. That's not to say that we don't have choices to make. Of course we have choices to make. But even when we make the wrong choices, we can't get in the way of God's will. Uh, there are some examples that Paul brings up in later verses, verses 27 and 29. He talks about how the enemies of Christ, who fulfilled, they fulfilled God's promises by condemning Christ. They, they unwittingly played a role in bringing God's plans to light. There's an analogy that I heard one time that I think is very helpful in understanding how our free choices work within the, the will of God. Uh, you can think of a cruise ship on its way to England. And you get on this cruise ship, and inside the cruise ship, you have all kinds of choices you can make. You can live your days out as you like. You can uh, choose the entertainment you want. You can eat the food that you want. You can... Um, go to a show or you can can, uh, do some other activities and everybody's moving about the boat according to their wishes and their desires, but the ship is still headed to England. And there's nothing anybody can do, no choices they can make inside that boat to change the course of the ship. It's going to go to England. And that's how our lives are. There's a sovereign will of God overriding everything. Within it, we have our choices to make. But overall, God's purposes will be fulfilled, and the people who have the best lives are the ones that seek to align them with the will of God, knowing that He is in control. Don't be overwhelmed. Know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Let's look at the second point here. Number two, to those who are overwhelmed by uncertainty, the Messiah has come. This is the climax of Paul's sermon. In the first point, he identified the Messiah as Jesus. Now he has to prove what he has claimed. These people don't know Jesus, and they may have heard false ideas about Jesus. So Paul has a burden of proof on himself. He has to show that Jesus is the one who was promised by the Old Testament Scriptures. And he does this using three lines of evidence. Number one, he points to his innocence. Look at verse 28. Paul said, they found in him no guilt worthy of death. You study the trials of Jesus under Pontius Pilate in John chapter 18 and 19. Three times Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. This man is innocent. This man is not guilty. It was clear that Jesus had been set up. He had not committed the crimes that he had been accused of. In fact, this man had never done anything wrong. There's no sin in him, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He was tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. And so first of all, he pointed to his innocence, the only man who ever lived who never sinned. Number two, Paul points to the prophecies. He's in a synagogue, his audience is Jewish, they're familiar with the Old Testament prophets, and so he refers to them again and again and again, showing that they are pointing to Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ. There are over 300 Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Now let's look at what Paul said. He said that if those who lived in Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him, It was not because they did not understand, it was because they didn't understand the utterances of the prophets, verse 27, which were read every Sabbath. Look at the scriptures, he says, and you'll see that Jesus is the one. Verse 29, he says, they unwittingly carried out all that was written of him. And then you have in verses 33 through 35, a string of verses that he pulls from the Old Testament to show that the Messiah was the one that God would raise from the dead. He quotes from Psalm 2, verse 7 and verse 33, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he goes to the book of Isaiah, chapter 55, verse 3 and verse 34, when he says, I give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And from there he goes to Psalm 16, verse 10, which he quotes according to verse 35, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. He points out that David himself, the king, could not have been speaking of himself because he died and he was buried with his fathers and his bones remain in that tomb to this day. Who was he talking about? He was talking about Jesus because Jesus was raised, which was his third point. Not only was he innocent, not only did the prophecies predict his coming and identify Jesus as the Christ, but thirdly, and mostly, and, and probably most convincingly, this man was raised from the dead. Now, he says two things about this. First of all, he points to the empty tomb. Look at verse 29 again. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. You and I might just pass over that without thinking but if you're in antioch pisidia not far from the city of jerusalem where jesus was crucified you would have known about the tomb you would have known that jesus was laid in the tomb of joseph of arimathea and if you wanted to you could go and visit that tomb and if you went to that tomb you would have found that there was no body in it it was empty Fifty days after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, Peter stood in the same city where he died and was buried and proclaimed him as the risen Lord, and no one produced the corpse. Now, there were a lot of enemies. All they would have had to do to stop Christianity in its tracks is to produce the, the body of Jesus, and it would be over. But nobody did it. You know why? There was nothing in the tomb it was empty the second thing he brings up are the eyewitnesses verse 31 for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people in 1 Corinthians 15 Paul brings up over 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection many of which most of which he says are still alive Why does Paul bring this up so often? Because in his lifetime, people could go and check the witnesses. They were credible witnesses. There were hundreds of them who saw Jesus after he died. What was their motivation for claiming Jesus was the Christ? They were persecuted for saying that. I'm with Blaise Pascal who said, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. Their only motivation for making these claims is that they were true and so Paul stands up and he says we live in times of uncertainty but I'll tell you one thing we can know for sure and that is Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah the Savior of the world because number one he was the only innocent man who ever lived and number two the prophecies your scriptures point in that direction and number three he's risen And we know this from the empty tomb, and we know this because of the eyewitnesses who saw him. We live in an extremely confusing world. We live in a time when people are trying to tell us that up is down and down is up. And friends, what our world needs, what would be more encouraging than anything, is the certain truths of the gospel that cannot be denied. They need to know there is a Savior and his name is Jesus. Isaiah described our time well when he said in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter I don't think a better description of our time could be said the world asks us to believe things that can't be supported by by truth they say look at the science and then they go against science they say look at the truth and they go against truth They say, be true to yourself, and then they deny themselves. There is truth, and it's found in God's Word. And when we're confused and uncertain, and we don't know what to do, and we're bewildered, it's God's Word that can bring us back. So many people are living in a fog. But what is fog? I saw a study one time, and it said that... um, A dense fog covering seven city blocks to a depth of 100 feet condensed into water wouldn't fill a drinking glass. That's very interesting. Fog can blind you, can block your vision, it can confuse you, disorient you, but what is it? It's not even a glass full of water. And that's how the confusion of this world is. It dissipates in the clear sunlight Of the Word of God it's a confusing time sometimes we're like the doctor who was giving three older men a memory test and the first man came in he said what's one plus one and the man said 274 the second man comes in he said what's one plus one he says Tuesday third man comes in he says what's one plus one he says two he said oh that's great he said how did you get that answer He said I subtracted 274 from Tuesday you know that's the confusion we live in today we're just we don't know up from down good from evil bitter from sweet we live in a fog and when we're confused and everything's upside down we have to turn to the only thing that's certain the Word of God after John John F. Kennedy jr. died in a plane crash in 1999 Stephen Hedges, an amateur pilot, wrote a column about the difficulty of flying a plane by instruments. It's a necessary skill if you want to fly at night or in a fog. And during one of his lessons, he noted, I flew the headings and turns as instructed, but even with 10 hours of instrument flying in my logbook, I was amazed at how quickly the plane slipped into a banking turn if I diverted my attention for just a few moments. The first time it happened a pang of panic shot through me a momentary fear that made it even more difficult to comprehend what the plane was doing but when he heard his instructor next to him say watch your bank had just quickly leveled the plane there are times when we're forced by uncertainties to fly in the fog to fly at night when we cannot see and that's when we need to turn to our instruments the Word of God another illustration Deep sea divers talk about how you can go so deep you can get into complete darkness. And in that environment, in deep seawater, it's impossible to tell up from down. It's hard to gain your equilibrium. So what they do is they feel for the bubbles coming out of their oxygen tank. And the bubbles always go up. When you don't know where you are, feel for the bubbles. And then you'll see where... Up is you'll see where the light is God's Word will orient you it never goes wrong it's always true in an upside-down world the gospel will direct us don't forget that let's go to number three number three in this sermon at Antioch Pisidia Paul says to those overwhelmed by sin You can be saved. Verses 38 and following. He continues explaining that the truth of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is good news. He called the gospel good news uh, prior to this, and he explains that in verses that follow. Look at uh, verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. My translation uses the word freed. It comes from a word that means justified. Through faith in Jesus we are justified. That claim is made over and over and over again in the Scriptures. For example, Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. God is declared just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does it mean to be justified? Well, some people think of it as being made righteous, but to be exact, it means to be declared righteous. God says, Because of the death of my son, I will not punish you for your sins. I will declare that you are righteous as he is truly righteous. So some people remember the term justified, translated freed here, as it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's a good way to remember because that's the, the outcome of being justified. God treats you just as if you had never sinned. You're declared righteous. And this promise is not just for some, but the potential to be freed from sin, to be justified, it's extended to all. Now look at the absolutes in verses 38 and following in the sermon. It's not just for the rich, the privileged, the educated, or members of a particular class or race or nationality. Verse 39 says, this is for everyone. Everyone. Number two, it's not just the little sins and discretions, but verse 39 says, We are freed from everything. It's for everyone and everything. And number three, he says, it's not just grace and mercy that you can imagine that you are capable of, but it goes beyond that. Quoting from Habakkuk or rather Haggai, he says, in verse 41 look you scoffers be astounded and perish for I'm doing a work in your days a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you it's grace beyond your belief not just for a few it's for everyone it doesn't just apply to certain sins but it's for everything and it's not just the level of mercy and forgiveness you are capable of but because it's God's mercy and God's grace You wouldn't believe it if God were to tell you. And some people say, God would never forgive me. How could God ever forgive what I did? He will forgive you if you will believe. Paul says, verse 39, this is for everyone who believes. What does it mean to believe? People have tried to confuse that idea. It's very plain in Scripture. Belief is the work of God, John chapter 6, verse 29. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Belief is, is trusting God to the point of obedience. If you believe somebody... And they ask you to do something. They tell you that your salvation is here. You're going to go where they say it is. And so James connects belief and obedience together. In James chapter 2, verse 24, saying, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, in contemporary religion today, people like to talk about faith alone they'll say you don't have to do anything to be saved and then they'll tell you to pray a prayer which is doing something to be saved you don't have to do anything all you have to do is accept Jesus in your heart well the Bible never says that and it never defines belief that way it says there are things that your belief should lead you to do unless you repent You will all likewise perish. Luke chapter 13, verse 3. Whoever confesses me before men, him will I confess before my God, my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever disbelieves will be condemned. Mark 16, 16. But these aren't hard things to do. How much does God ask of us compared to what he did? He sent his son so that everyone can be freed from everything beyond their ability to even imagine. I want you to be an encourager, and I want you to be encouraged. And I pray that this lesson has encouraged you And I want to tell you, the best way you can encourage somebody else is to share with them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To those who are overwhelmed by life, it promises God is in control. To those who are overwhelmed by uncertainty, it tells us the Messiah is Jesus and He has come. And to those who are overwhelmed by sin... Its message is, you can be saved. Everyone can be saved. From everything, you can be free. What's more encouraging than that? People are overwhelmed. They need to be encouraged. Maybe you need some encouragement this morning. You've heard what God has asked of you. You've heard what He has done for you. You've heard about Jesus and the grace and mercy that's available through Him. If we can help you in any way, we're going to sing an invitation song, and we ask you to come right now as we stand together and as we sing.